are listening to Radio Maria, and this is our Hour of Catechesis. Today we have the pleasure of having Father Richard Unsworth, OP, join us to speak to us about the Gospel of Matthew. Father Richard is a fellow of Blackfriars Oxford, although he currently lives in Leicester. He commutes, and um, it is a wonderful privilege and pleasure to have you with us, Father Richard. Thank you very much. What a, what a very kind and glowing introduction. I shall try to live up to it. Uh, yes, for the next, well, as many months as Radio Maria will have me, I shall be talking to you once a month on the subject of St. Matthew's Gospel. My plan uh, after today is to take us through it one or two chapters at a time, depending on how the time goes and how interested you all seem in it. Um, but today what I want to do is give us a sort of general overview of the whole thing, get a sense of what St. Matthew's Gospel is. And I suppose perhaps a sensible place to start would be to think about what a Gospel is. And you may think it's very obvious. A Gospel is the story of Jesus's life, death and resurrection. Uh, and we have four of them and they're all a bit different, but they all cover basically the same story, of course, don't they? At the same time, they do all start at different points. Uh, Matthew and Luke, as you know, start with the uh, prelude to the birth of Jesus, the Annunciation to Joseph in Matthew and Our Lady in Luke. John starts rather further back with the uh, eternal procession of the Son from the Father. And I don't know if you can call that further back, but it, in eternity, shall we say. And Mark uh, starts right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So let's say 30 years later than Matthew and Luke. But apart from the obvious fact that they are all accounts of Jesus's life, how are, to we, how are we to understand what Gospels are? I think the very fact that we're using the word gospel is very significant. You'll have been told in sermons, I'm sure a thousand times, that the word gospel means good news. The Greek word, which St. Mark uses, is euangelion, which is really a proclamation of victory in the ancient world. A euangelion would be posted up in the forum or the agora of a city to say, you know, our general has just won a magnificent victory. So we should think of the Gospels, I think, as proclamations of victory. And when we look at St. John's Gospel, towards the end in chapter 20, he says, this has been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing have life in his name. So the Gospel is a proclamation of God's definitive victory in Christ, but it's also clearly something that is written to bring people to faith, to bring people to a personal relationship with Jesus, that believing you may have life in his name. We're not just supposed to subscribe to a set of beliefs. We're supposed to really commit our lives to this personal relationship with Jesus. And every one of the Gospels, in its own distinctive way, is inviting us to do that. Every one of the Gospels is in its own way what we might call a concrete form of 
what St. Paul, who I think coined the word gospel, what he calls the, the kerygma, the proclamation. It's the one story of Jesus Christ. But that story has been told in more than one way. It's been told by our four evangelists. And so it's really worth looking at each of the evangelists to ask ourselves, where is this particular gospel coming from? What is this particular evangelist interested in? I suppose there might be some anxiety that has been in the past that having four different gospels, which are not exactly the same, and which maybe you can't line up absolutely perfectly, maybe that casts doubt on our faith. Does it suggest that you know, one of them at most is right and the other three must be getting something wrong? I don't think that's a very helpful way of thinking about it. No history, even a modern history, is just a straightforward relating of the facts. Every history, every biography, and I suppose a gospel is a, a cross really between a history and a biography, every one of those is wanting not just to tell us the facts, but to tell us why those facts are important, to share with us something about the real meaning of this story. So let's ask then St. Matthew over the next few months, what is the meaning of the story of Jesus's life? Well, if we're going to do that, I suppose we should move on to ask ourselves, who is St. Matthew? Well, of course, we know the answer to that because it tells us in the Gospels, indeed, specifically in the Gospel of St. Matthew, we are told that he was a tax collector who Jesus summoned in his usual fairly peremptory fashion, and Matthew leapt up with joyful abandon and followed Jesus, leaving behind his tax collecting booth. And we all know as well, I think, that a tax collector in the time of Christ was not as highly respected and loved a figure as the people are now who work for His Majesty's Revenue and Customs. We all love those tax collectors. But 2,000 years ago, a tax collector was a very different kind of figure, seen as somebody who was collaborating with Roman rule, somebody who was profiteering. A tax collector would go out to contract, and then if they were going to make a profit, they needed to take far more money than they were actually entitled to. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low. We see this referred to actually in all of the Gospels. Christ regularly uses the expression tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners will enter the kingdom of heaven before you, he says to the Pharisees at one point. Why tax collectors and sinners? Because they are the lowest of the low. I often say, and I think it's a really important mental exercise for us to do this, let's ask ourselves, who are the tax collectors of the 21st century in Britain? I, I don't mean who works for HMRC. What I mean is, who are the lowest of the low? Who are the people that are absolutely despised? We might think of, I confess to you, the first word that came into my head, as I said, despised was politicians. A great many politicians, perhaps even the whole class of them, 
are despised these days. We might think of child abusers. We might think of rapists, of con men, of, of people who come to the door when there's a vulnerable old lady and rip her off uh, thousands of pounds for pretending to mend her roof. These are the kinds of people we should think of when we hear that expression, tax collectors and sinners, people that you and I are really tempted to despise and think surely that person is beyond the mercy of God. And I think it's really important to have this in mind when we read St. Matthew's Gospel, because he's not a disinterested historian. He's not a modern biographer writing about just anybody. He is a man who has been called out of this position of being despised, out of this position of being, as he himself recognizes, the most terrible of sinners, and invited to follow Jesus, told as one of the twelve that he will sit on one of twelve thrones judging the people of Israel, told that whatever people did to the least of the little ones they did to Jesus, and those little ones are Jesus's followers, people like Matthew. Jesus has had the experience, sorry, Matthew has had the experience of being called by love to love. And he's been called to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he enters into the kingdom of heaven by having that personal relationship with Jesus, by becoming one of his disciples, one of his apostles, and now one of his evangelists. Now, of course, the question is, was it really this Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? I suppose in a way the word Matthew has two meanings, and the question is, are they both the same? Matthew the tax collector, Matthew the evangelist. The church's tradition says yes. Uh, to be more precise, actually, the, the great ancient tradition is that Matthew wrote his Gospel, an account of Jesus's life and teachings in Aramaic. But the Gospel that we have, the Gospel of Matthew, is not in Aramaic, it's in Greek, which was the language of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. It was as important in society then as English is today. If people had been writing blogs and websites and wanting to get them read all over the world 2,000 years ago, they'd have been writing them in Greek. So the question is, did Matthew in fact write this gospel which is now in Greek, or did he write something in Aramaic, and where then did this Greek come from? I was thinking about this just now actually, and it seems to me the most likely explanation is this, that St. Matthew the Apostle wrote down his account of Jesus's life and teachings, an account which included that story of his own call and conversion. And then that account became the basis of the Greek that we now have. It's not a direct translation. I think I'm fairly sure about that because, well, Matthew's Greek just doesn't read like a translation out of Aramaic. But at the same time, it does become clear when you read it 
that the author of Matthew's Gospel really knows his Bible well. And by the Bible, I mean specifically the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament, yes, but the Old Testament in Hebrew. And I say this because Paul, uh, Mark, um, probably I think Luke and John as well, when they quote the Bible, they quote the Greek translation that already existed. But Matthew is clearly reading it in Hebrew. So what we've got here is somebody who knows how to write Greek, who has taken St. Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's account of Jesus's life and ministry, and turned it into the Gospel that we have today. And it's impossible now to know exactly how much of the credit, as it were, should go to Matthew the tax collector, Matthew the apostle, and this, as it were, second Matthew, this Matthew the evangelist, who's actually put together the final Greek edition. I think both of them have made an extraordinary contribution to the life of the church. The reason I'm fairly sure that Matthew's gospel, as we now have it, is not absolutely identical to the memoirs, if you like, of St. Matthew the Apostle, is because it looks to me very, very much like St. Matthew, when he was writing his gospel, had St. Mark's gospel in front of him. This is, I'm not going to go into it because I'd bore you to tears, but this is uh, relating to something which is known as the synoptic problem. And those of you who are interested in maybe doing cryptic crosswords or logic problems might like to get to grips with the synoptic problem one day and see if you can make head or tail of it, because for 2,000 years, nobody's been at all sure what the answer is. But I think one thing that almost everybody agrees about is that Marx was the first gospel to be written. When you look at the relationship between Mark and Matthew, they're so close some of the time in the exact wording that they have that it seems to me one of them must have had the other one written down in front of him. So you may say to me, well then, surely Mark, who was not an apostle, came after Matthew. And that might be true. I can't prove to you that it wasn't. But so often when there are differences between Mark and Matthew, it's because Matthew has made Mark's into better Greek. Mark's Greek is, I'm sure he won't mind me telling you this, a little bit ropey, whereas Matthew's gospel is good. It's not as beautiful as the Greek of uh, St. Luke, let alone the letter to the Hebrews, but it's in pretty decent Greek. He's really knocked it into shape. And also what he's done is in expanding St. Mark's gospel, he's incorporated a lot of what Mark doesn't have which is the actual teaching of Jesus. It will be much more difficult to explain why Mark, if he had Matthew's gospel in front of him, would have made the Greek deliberately worse and cut out a whole load of stuff that Jesus actually said. While you have a little think about that and see if you agree with me, perhaps now would be a good time to play some music. Say, come unto me and 
one Lay down thy head upon my breast I came to Jesus as I was Weary and worn and sad I found in him a resting place and he has made me glad I heard the voice of Jesus say Behold, I freely give A living water Thirsty one stoop down I heard the voice of Jesus say by the hillbilly Thomists. I chose it because um, those are Dominican brothers singing there. And we have with us today for our hour of catechesis, Father Richard Onsworth, who's busy speaking to us about the Gospel of Matthew. And um, we go back over to you, Father Richard. Thank you very much indeed. So, so far, I've suggested to you that St. Matthew wrote the gospel from his own experience, his encounter with Christ, uh, 
and it's an account, a first-hand account, of Jesus's life and ministry. But at the same time, I think it's been uh, mediated, there's been some fiddling about at the literary level, and in particular that he's used as a written source for his gospel, the gospel of St Mark. And it's, I think this is true, but I also, I'm glad I think it's true, because it means that we can look at the differences between Mark and Matthew and come to some conclusions about what Matthew's particular interests are, what Matthew's strategy is, if you like, for composing his gospel, by comparing it with what we have when we look at St Mark. Actually, St Mark's gospel, almost 90% of it, appears in Matthew's gospel, but sort of squished up a little bit, compressed, you might say. I mean, a really good example of this, I'm not going to read it to you now, but if you have time, go and have a look at Mark's gospel, chapter 5, the first 20 verses, and then compare that with the parallel passage, which is in Matthew's gospel, chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. And you get a really good example of the way in which St. Matthew squishes up the material that he's getting from Mark. And I think, I can't be sure, but I think he's deliberately doing this because he wants to make space. Already, St. Matthew's gospel is twice the length of St. Mark's, but it would have been even longer. It would have been intolerably long, perhaps, if, uh, if he hadn't squashed it up. And I say intolerably long, not just as a joke, but because actually it did matter in the ancient world how long things were. Because you see, you would buy a standard length of papyrus scroll. And St. Mark's Gospel is exactly one standard papyrus scroll length long. Whereas Matthew's is pretty much exactly two papyrus scroll lengths long. So he sees how much material he's got. He knows how he's going to have to try and squeeze it in. And the very fact that he's going to have to do that makes me think this has to have been a written exercise that was done in Greek. I don't think you could do this going along, as it were, translating word for word from Hebrew. It would just be impossible. Now, there are strong, very strong similarities between Mark and Matthew when it comes to the storyline. Although, of course, and we'll talk about this next time, St. Matthew does begin a lot earlier, previously mentioned. We have the genealogy of Christ, and then the story of the Annunciation to Joseph, and then the story of the wise men, their visit to Herod, and the flight of Jesus and the Holy Family to Egypt. A very different infancy narrative from the infancy narrative that we have in Luke. Mark has neither. That's kind of intriguing. There are all sorts of ways of thinking about that. It's also very striking that Matthew has a much longer ending than St Mark. St Mark's Gospel famously ends very abruptly with the resurrection, whereas Matthew expands that and 
in particular, what's really important is the very end of St. Matthew's Gospel, where he takes us up to the high mountain where Jesus is with the eleven, Judas being no longer with us at this point, and he says to the eleven, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore and preach the gospel to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and I am with you always to the end of the age. And in fact, that phrase, I am with you, echoes, it's more obvious in the Greek than in the English, the fact that at the beginning, at the Annunciation to Joseph, we're told Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's just one of the examples. We'll see loads of them, of how St. Matthew is very carefully constructing his gospel. So what we have at the beginning with Emmanuel, God with us, and at the end with I am with you always, is what we scholars, because we like to show off, will call an inclusio. Never use a word in English. If you can use one in Latin or German, if you're doing biblical scholarship, I might show my German off to you at some point, who can say. So St. Matthew has very carefully constructed his gospel on the basis of St. Mark's storyline. I think of Mark as the scaffolding, if you will, upon which St. Matthew has built his gospel. They have, after the infancy narrative, the same story, the baptism of Jesus, his temptation in the wilderness, though of course both Matthew and Luke expand that greatly, then the ministry in Galilee, and the journey to Jerusalem. This culminates, of course, in the passion narrative, including the Last Supper, and then Christ's crucifixion, which is followed by the resurrection appearances. Uh, to, in St. Mark, all we have, of course, is the empty tomb. Well, empty apart from a young man who is in it. Uh, St. Matthew has an angel, and then the women meet Jesus, who repeats the message of the angel, and then we end with Jesus on the mountain. Now, occasionally, St. Matthew does alter the order of things from Mark's Gospel. And when he does that, it's to gather material thematically. Mark's Gospel, I think, is quite carefully structured, but it's much less obviously so. You've got to be terribly clever and really into puzzles to read Mark's Gospel and figure out exactly how he's structured it. But Matthew makes it really, really easy for us by putting his material in great big blocks. So, for example, he takes the miracle stories from all over the first few chapters in Mark and gathers them all together in uh, chapters 8 and 9 of his Gospel. He takes Jesus having a go at the people who hate him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, scribes, the chief priests, etc. He takes his polemical condemnation of those opponents and gathers it all together in chapter 23. And most famously of all, and I think this is really what's striking about St. Matthew's Gospel, is that he gathers Jesus's teaching material, almost all of which is missing from Mark's Gospel, and he puts it into five big 
chunks. Those five big chunks are the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters five, six, and seven. Then what's known as the missionary discourse in chapter 10. The parables of the kingdom in chapter 13, which begins with the parable of the sower, which is the only, well, one of only two parables in Mark. Um, but then he expands on it greatly. Then we have parables of community and reconciliation in chapter 18, and what's known as the eschatological discourse, all that stuff about the uh, sun and moon turning to blood and all that in chapters 24 and 25. Now, interestingly, at the end of each of these five sections of Jesus's teaching material, St. Matthew transitions back to the story with the, basically the same phrase, when Jesus had finished these words, or in the case of the last one, when Jesus had finished all these words. Obviously, he's accentuating the fact that he's gathered his material into five blocks. And you can't help but thinking that we are supposed to see some kind of parallel between that and the five blocks of teaching, which we call the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. So even if St. Matthew didn't initially think to himself, oh, I know what I'll do, I'll have five blocks of teaching to parallel the five books of Moses, he certainly noticed it at some point, and he's invited us to notice it also. Why has he done that? I think because what St. Matthew is especially interested in is the relationship between Jesus and Judaism, the relationship between Jesus and Moses, between Jesus and the Mosaic law. And this relates to the fact that ever since ancient times, it's always been recognized that St. Matthew's gospel is, in some sense, the most Jewish. Now, of course, all the gospels are Jewish in some sense. They're all about Jesus, who's a Jew, and his disciples, who are Jews, and pretty much everybody he interacts with, apart from the Romans, is Jewish. But there's something especially Jewish about St. Matthew's gospel. I think if we picture the evangelists, we have a different picture of all of them in our minds. We might picture St. Luke, the doctor, um, sitting at a, a study desk, very sort of studious. We picture St. John as a young man um, leaning on the breast of Jesus, but then in old age, living with the Blessed Virgin Mary in Ephesus. When I picture St. Matthew, I always picture him with his prayer shawl on, with his uh, yamulka, with his long tassels, with his big sort of rabbinic beard. I can't prove to you that Matthew looked anything like that. I can't prove to you that Matthew was steeped in rabbinical studies. But I get this very strong sense that Matthew is coming from an especially Jewish place, as it were, and that he's writing, perhaps not exclusively, but at least in part, for people 
who are genuinely asking themselves, what is the relationship between Jesus and Judaism? For, perhaps for people who were Jews or still think of themselves as Jews, but have now come to follow Christ, asking themselves, well, have I left Judaism behind? I may talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes time, but once again, it's time for Tim to leap into action and play us another piece of music. Lush and green are the trees are the fields see but of all the trees of the woods the tree of life see bears the glorious crown come see come see tis the key for life tis a creed for life kiss the tree of life as yours to the tree you've just begun listening this is radio maria we're broadcasting from cambridge and we have joining us today on the line father richard onsworth who's busy speaking to us about the gospel of matthew thank you so much tim so i was talking before the break about uh the way in which matthew has deliberately organized these five blocks of jesus's teaching in a way which clearly parallels the five books of the Torah. 
that's just one of a number of what we might think of as obvious ways in which he structures his gospel. I'll just mention a couple of others. You might look at uh, 4.17 and 16.21, and you can see how there he clearly marks out new phases in Jesus's ministry. I've already mentioned, showing off my Latin, the word inclusio, that parallel between the beginning and the end to make it into a sort of massive sandwich. And there are various others. For example, the way in which at regular intervals, St. Matthew tells us that what's happening in his story is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And as we go through the gospel in coming months, we'll see that this is one of the really big themes of St. Matthew. He does it in a very obvious, almost clunky way that he wants to say, look, Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies over and over again. All of these structural elements serve to slow down the story. Compared to Mark, it's a little bit less cinematic, a little bit less vivid. We get less of a sense of the approaching storm of a dramatic headlong rush to Calvary. And instead, it's somewhat more organized, more systematic. And I think it's, it's possible, even probable, that Jesus did organize his own teaching in a fairly systematic way. And I think that his first apostles, the Twelve, would have made sure to systematize his teaching for their own memories as they wanted to pass that on to later generations of disciples. But at the same time, I think a lot of the organization that we have in Matthew's gospel is down to Matthew himself, especially because, as I've mentioned, the organization thematically goes to the narrative as well as to the teaching. Now, if St. Matthew has deliberately created this fivefold structure, then he's undoubtedly inviting us to think about some sort of parallel between Jesus and Moses. In what sense does Jesus exceed Moses? He says in the Sermon on the Mount several times, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And very often what we've heard it said, we've heard it said by Moses. So Jesus is undoubtedly placing himself not just alongside Moses, but over and above him. Moses goes up Mount Sinai to receive the law, but Jesus ascends the Sermon of the Mount to give not exactly a new law. I don't think St. Matthew would want us to think of it quite like that, but rather the definitive interpretation of the Jewish law. And I think that's the lesson that St. Matthew is inviting his readers to take from his gospel, that if you want to be a Jew, if you want to be faithful to the covenant that God made with Israel, if you want to be faithful to the law of Moses and the tradition of the elders, then actually Jesus shows you how to do that. He shows you how to do that by the way in which he lives his own life. 
as well as by the teachings that he offers. So Jesus is giving us the true understanding of the law and the covenant. And that's because, as St. Matthew tells us over and over again with those formulaic sort of prophetic fulfillment sayings, Jesus is the culmination of the whole of salvation history, and not just a sort of Moses strand of salvation history. When we look back to the genealogy, remember he tells us that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. That strand of Jewish history which begins with the covenant with David and God's love for David and his sons and the hopes for a Davidic Messiah, that's fulfilled in Jesus. And the promises that go all the way back to Abraham, when God called Abraham following the events at the Tower of Babel and made him that threefold promise, I will be your God, I will give you a land, I will give you descendants. All of those promises are being fulfilled in the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that is the answer to a question which must undoubtedly have been very, very pressing for any Jewish person or even anybody who was interested in Judaism, but who then came to Christ, recognizing in him the fulfillment of all of God's promises and his covenant. I wonder, Tim, whether this is a good time to take a question, if we have one. Hello, Lynette. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Where are you um, calling from? Um, near Cambridge. Lovely. Yes. And you have two questions, I understand, for Father Richard. Uh, I have. Um, Lovely. Go for if it. There's, if, there's, if there's time. Um, the first one is, I'm wondering which languages Jesus would have spoken. Please. Well, do you know, that's a really great question. I mean, we, we can be absolutely sure that Jesus spoke Aramaic because mm. that was the, the language, the local language of uh, the Holy Land in the time of Christ. Mm. Um, it, it's interesting, actually, Aramaic was the official language of the Western part of the Persian Empire. So it was actually when the Persians... Uh, conquered the Babylonian Empire, that Aramaic sort of came in. And the alphabet that we see Hebrew written in these days is actually the Aramaic alphabet, which the, the Persians imposed, but then the, the, the Hebrew speakers adapted it. And Aramaic and Hebrew are related, but not by any means the same language. They're related the way that um, English is related to German. So then the question, I suppose, is did Jesus speak Hebrew. And I mean, the impression that one gets is that he was educated. Um, you know, he wasn't a, a, a poor, uneducated peasant. He was an educated man. He was capable of standing up and reading from the scroll in the synagogue. So I'm, I'm quite sure that he had a good working knowledge of, of Hebrew. I mean, humanly speaking, of course, uh, as, as, as God, he spoke all languages and could have spoken in, in Welsh or Albanian if he'd wanted to, but nobody would have known what he was talking about. Mm. Um, a more interesting question for me is, did Jesus speak Greek? 
Yeah, that's what I was, I was going to ask. Yeah, I'm inclined to think that he did because mm. it was the lingua franca of that region. I remember when I went to see years ago now, of course, the film of The Passion of the Christ, thinking, why haven't they got any Greek in this? What language did Jesus and Pontius Pilate have in common? There's no reason why Jesus would have spoken Latin. And I don't think Pontius Pilate would have bothered learning Aramaic. I'm quite sure they would have spoken to one another in Greek, which raises the real possibility that what we're reading in the gospel accounts of Jesus before Pilate is the actual words that were spoken and not just somebody else's translation of them. But tragically, I can't prove it, Lynette. Mm -hmm. mm. That 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 is that is helpful because I was wondering, you know, what language the the Romans were um, were speaking likely to speak. You, um, so the second question, if there's time, Tim, is yes, there? please go for it. Yes. So the second question is to do with your reflections earlier about Matthew and your strong sense of his being immersed in and coming from a a rabbinic, a rabbinic tradition of really being immersed in the Hebrew scripture. Um, so the, yeah. this this is linked to the question about Jesus. Um, the if you're right that that sense is true, and we will go with that idea that Matthew was deeply steeped in the in the um, Hebrew um, scriptures, if that's the right word. Mm-hmm. Um, I I gather recently from something I've been looking into that the um, texts that are known as deuterocanonical were not the texts that were reflected on by those studying rabbinic studies within um, the Holy Land area, the the Hebrew speakers. I gather that the texts that are deuterocanonical were um, being studied by those who are in um, more dispersed or away into the Greek-speaking parts of, um, I'll call it the Mediterranean. Now, um, yeah. we're hitting the limits of my knowledge, but I, um, I'm. This leads to a further bit of the question, which is: Would Jesus have been surrounded by and being reflecting on the Hebrew uh, rabbinic studies, or? Could he just as well have been, and Matthew too, been aware of and also studying the um, uh, Torah or is it the Tanakh? I don't know the right words in Greek and Hebrew. So yeah. might they have been studying in both languages? Absolutely, uh, I think right. that's perfectly plausible. I, I certainly, absolutely, wouldn't want to rule out the possibility that Matthew, the tax collector had Greek and was capable of reading uh, the Greek scriptures. Mm. Uh, To take a step back, um, Mm. your question about rabbinics, what we Mm. know about rabbinic studies, we know about what was going on in the late second century and onwards. That's when the rabbinic texts actually start to emerge. We don't know, although people like to pretend that they do, um, what was actually going on in terms of biblical studies, and more broadly, what was going on in terms of the Bible in the time Uh, of Christ. People didn't have Bibles. What they had was scrolls 
containing some holy writings. You might have, I mean, every synagogue undoubtedly would have a scroll of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They'd hope to have scrolls of the major prophets. They might have scrolls of the minor prophets. And then it sort of dwindles away. The deuterocanonical books that you mentioned are books that we find in the Septuagint. That's the Greek uh, Old Testament, which was mm. already around in the time of Christ, but didn't make it into the sort of definitive Hebrew Bible. But we need to remember that the definitive version of the Hebrew Bible wasn't actually put together until long after the time of Christ. The oldest surviving manuscript we have of it is actually 10th or 11th century AD. So there's this big sort of gap in our mm. knowledge about specifically about the Hebrew Bible. Let me just give one example. The book of Sirach uh, is deuterocanonical, so-called. It's in our Bibles, but not in mm -hmm. Protestant Bibles. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have it in Hebrew. We have it in Greek. And it says at the beginning, this is a translation of something that my grandfather wrote in Hebrew. And nobody believed that. Everybody thought that was just a, you know, a polite fiction and that it had, in fact, been composed in Greek until I think it was in the 1880s. But forgive me, I can't remember exactly. But a goodish while back, somebody found in a rubbish tip in Cairo mm. bits of Hebrew. Sirach. And when you look at that Hebrew Sirach, you can tell that the Greek is a translation of it. So who knows whether there's other Hebrew original stuff that never made it into the Hebrew Bible, but which Hebrew speaking, as well as Greek speaking, biblical scholars, probably calling themselves rabbis, were reading in and around the time of Christ. That's really helpful. Is that the Cairo Geniza? It is, is exactly that... the Cairo Geniza. Yes. Okay. Right. Um, there's an expert in Cambridge um, who is the director of the Wolf Institute, Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner, and she is an expert in the Cairo well, Geniza. She would know a lot more about it than I do. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you so much. I, I I have more questions as always, but it's probably nearly time, and I want to let somebody else have a go. But well, thank do you. Please bring in again. It was lovely talking to you. Thank you very much. Okay. Yes, bye -bye. Lynette, do call in again because we'll um, next week, same time, Father Richard will be talking about similar things and we'd love to, to have you call in. So I hope that that was um, helpful to you. But, um, yes. Good. Very. Okay. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks. God bless. Bye. Um, unfortunately, we're kind of coming to the end of our, of our time. I might squeeze in a question, something burning on my heart. By all um, means. What is the plural of papyrus? <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to ask me a difficult one. The plural of papyrus is papyri. Ah. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> um, uh, although, I mean, unless you're Greek, in which case it's papyroi. But we won't insist upon that. <laughs> papyri, yes. And the papyri are not unimportant. Small and very often little tiny scraps, but they are the oldest witnesses that we have to the text of the New Testament. Really? I am um, years ago now, I saw a little bit of one of the so-called Oxyrhynchus papyri, which are in Oxford, actually, 
I could not make out a single word, huh. but experts can read them and they're not unimportant. So you're saying that these are older either, even than um, sort of animal hide fragments that we would have? Well, in terms of specifically of texts of the scriptures, right? Um, the, the, the oldest surviving manuscripts of the New Testament are little tiny bits of papyrus. After that, you've got nothing until the fourth century. Okay. Another thing you said, which I thought was rather controversial for some, was that um, Jesus had no reason to speak Latin. Well, um, I mean, if... That's slightly like slightly tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> <if, laughs> I mean, he speaks Latin now, um, but it, it, a, a human being who had all the human characteristics of Jesus wouldn't have had any reason to learn Latin. Right. Uh, of course, Jesus is the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, so it gets a bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. But humanly speaking, I think he would have had every reason to learn Greek, every reason to learn Hebrew, and he would have been brought up speaking Aramaic. But I, I can't conceive of him needing Latin in those yeah. days. Father Richard, it's been so much fun having you on air, and um, I wonder if you would end with a prayer for us. Absolutely Thank my you. pleasure. Thank you very much. We think today being the feast of the conversion of St Paul, as well as we've been talking about St Matthew, I think we should ask for their intercession on our work and on our lives. Almighty God, pour out your Spirit upon us, the Spirit of the Apostles, of St Matthew, of St Paul, and of all your holy Apostles. Enlighten our hearts that we may understand your Word more fully. Give us the courage, the strength, and the wisdom to preach your gospel to everyone we meet, and grant us the full blessings of the kingdom which was preached so beautifully by St Matthew in his gospel. We make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.